Well, you can go ahead and um, stand with me for the reading of God's Word, Matthew 27, uh, 57 through 66. Matthew 27, 57 through 66. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who was also a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own new tomb which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there, sitting opposite the tomb. The next day, that is, the day after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said while he was still alive, after three days I will be risen. Therefore, Order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he has risen from the dead. And the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard of soldiers. Go make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. This is God's word. You may be seated. Well, when you're thinking about the gospel and presenting the gospel, remember, gospel just means good news, is what Jesus has called us to, to proclaim the good news and presenting the good news. How often do you focus on Jesus' burial? You know, you might focus on Jesus' death, and you should. That is where atonement was accomplished on the cross. And then hopefully you should also be articulating the resurrection and not just stopping at the cross, because that is also part of the good news. It's no good news if some Jewish guy just died on a cross and didn't rise from the dead. That's no good news. But what about the in-between step? What about his burial? Is that part of your good news presentation? It was for the Apostle Paul, 1 Corinthians 15. You don't have to turn there, but... These are probably familiar words to you, but Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 4. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. You see, Paul gives the very kind of core reality of the gospel. What do you, in general, present? I mean, there's a lot of things uh, that you want to present when you present the gospel. You want to give a framework of Christ's kingdom. Uh, you want to give a framework of the kingdom he's going to establish on earth. But when you're talking about the core of the good news, you're going to share Christ died, he was buried, and he rose again. We think about the cross, we less often think about the resurrection, unfortunately, we need to do that more, but what about the burial? What about the burial? The burial is part of the gospel, and Matthew today uh, includes and shows us why the importance of the burial of Jesus to the gospel message. Not the resurrection yet, although we're anticipating that, and Matthew is already clearly 
said he's going to rise from the dead, but why is the burial important? Let's just review briefly where we have been, and uh, Jesus has been steadily marching towards the cross. He was crucified on the cross. He was mocked on the cross for being the Christ, the King of Israel, the Son of God. Last week, we saw his cry of being forsaken, not that he was uh, not that he was, uh, had any severed relationship with the Father, but in the, the circumstances surrounding him on the cross, he's abandoned. There's, there's people all around him. They're, they're, he's being mocked. He's, he, it looks like he's the farthest from rescue, and yet Jesus cries out really in faith, calling on God to act, to rescue, to vindicate him, but then he dies. That's where we left him last week, that Christ died on the cross. There were witnesses. There were witnesses among his disciples. Uh, there were witnesses even among the Roman soldiers, as we saw. But in particular, Matthew had highlighted these women who were there, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, and uh, the mother of the sons of Zebedee. They were there. They saw Jesus die. But then this week, Matthew's going to focus on Jesus' burial and roll that in to the gospel story. So our bigger idea for this morning is this, trust in Jesus as the Son of God, since even his burial proves it, proves that he's the Son of God. Everything that Matthew has done uh, leading up to the crucifixion, through the trials, through uh, the crucifixion itself, through the mockery, through everything that has happened, he has framed it in such a way to prove, far from discounting Jesus to be the Christ, it actually, all these things show that really Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. And included in that is not only Jesus' death, but as we see this week, his burial. Even his burial proves that he's the Son of God. And what is the, what is the response that Matthew wants of his audience? What is the response that Jesus wanted from people? What does God want from you this morning? He wants trust, allegiance. in the one who even in his burial has shown that he is the Son of God. So let's look at this in two parts. First, in verses 57 through 61, we're going to see this. Jesus' burial is according to the Scriptures. Jesus' burial is in, according, is in accordance with the Scriptures. Look at verse 57. When it was evening. Okay, now remember when Jesus, uh, the time markers that we got last week, um, Jesus... It was, there was darkness over all the land from about 12 noon, in our reckoning, to 3 p.m., in our reckoning. And it's around 3 p.m. that Jesus dies, that he breathes his last as a man. And we saw all of the events that accompanied that. What you have to realize, though, what day is it? It's Friday, it's the day of preparation. We actually find that out. That's how it's called. It's the preparation for the Sabbath. Sabbath is Saturday. Uh, despite all of our Christian friends and bygone eras that talk about Sunday being the Sabbath, Sunday is not the Sabbath. Saturday is the Sabbath. Okay? And so it's Friday evening, and the way Sabbath reckoning worked is that uh, you had to be done with your work before the sun went down. When the sun went down, you're done. That's the Sabbath starting. That's the rest starting. So uh, Joseph, as an observant Jew, Joseph of Arimathea, as we, we, we're introduced to him here shortly, um, he is working between the time when Jesus dies is about 3 p.m. to the time when the sun goes down, which probably is about 6. 
So he's got about three hours. This is the time frame we're looking. It's not become dark yet. Uh, and uh, what do we see? When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph. Arimathea is a town about um, a little uh, north and uh, west of Jerusalem, about 20, 25 miles away. This is the first time we've been introduced to this fellow. Uh, Matthew describes him as a rich man. That's important. Uh, he, does, uh, he, he gives all these descriptors of who this guy is. This is the first time he's introducing him as a character in the story. And one of the things he mentions, he's a rich man. He's from Arimathea. His name is Joseph. He was also a disciple of Jesus. Someone who followed Jesus. Um, we haven't been introduced to him before, but someone who followed Jesus, who uh, was connected with Jesus, who believed in his teaching, uh, who exercised repentance and faith in Jesus. He's a disciple. Now, what does this disciple do? Verse 58, he went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Now, this is fairly surprising because Jesus has just been crucified as the king of the Jews. Ostensibly, he's been crucified as, you know, from Rome's perspective, some sort of rebel upstart. But really, Pilate doesn't believe that anyway. But he, uh, at least from his fellow Jews, his fellow Jews have really pushed this whole thing for Jesus to get crucified. And uh, anyone connected with this Jesus, that would have been dangerous. So Joseph goes to Pilate. And probably not, you know, there's not so much danger from Pilate, but it's still a bold move. Every other disciple is gone at this point. Yes, there's the women who have observed all of this. But as far as the, uh, the, the, the 12, the 12 men disciples and anyone else, they're gone. They're nowhere to be seen except this guy. This guy, this rich guy comes forward. Uh, he has an audience with Pilate. We find out from other gospel accounts he was actually a member of the Sanhedrin. Um, but his status and his wealth probably allowed him to talk with Pilate. He goes into Pilate, and he asks for the body. He asks for the body of Jesus. And Pilate orders it to be given him. What does Joseph do? Verse 59, Joseph took the body, wrapped it in a clean linen shroud, laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. He rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. These are normal burial preparations. I'll remind you, we've talked about this before in our study of Matthew, but I'll remind you of what normal burial preparations in first century Israel would be. Generally speaking, on the same day that um, someone died, they would be buried. That's just the normal process of events. There's no way of kind of preserving the body. And so they do it the same day. Um, normally that would be done by close family. But, uh, and even though Jesus is a condemned criminal, and even though he has been uh, hung on a tree, that's another way of thinking about him being crucified. Uh, even for someone who's been hung on a tree, who's bearing the curse of God, that's how Deuteronomy 21, 22, and 23 would describe it, that anyone who's hanged on a tree has borne the curse of God. Even for those, you're not supposed to let the body stay on the tree overnight, lest there be a curse brought on the land. So Joseph, as a disciple of Jesus, as part of really the, who Jesus considers his family, how Jesus talked about his disciples earlier on in Matthew. Here's my family. Joseph, as one of his disciples, goes and gets the body, 
there would be washing involved in this. The corpse would be washed before this linen shroud is wrapped around the body. And then what would happen is you would stick the body in either a cave or, in this case, a, uh, a tomb, a, a tomb cut. That's pretty rare. Most of the tombs that they've unearthed archaeologically in first century Israel, they're mostly caves. Like if you're a normal person, average person, you put the body into the cave. Uh, but in this case, because Joseph's a rich man, he's already got his tomb planned out, and it's hewed into the rock. This is extra labor, extra cost. Um, not only that, we find out that uh, the doorway to his tomb is a round rolling stone. That's not normal either. Most of the tombs in the first century, uh, they have a plug. Literally, it's like a big old boulder that they stuck in the doorway of the tomb. He's got a rolling door tomb. So this is a swanky tomb. He's just a swanky tomb. Uh, there's actually a couple pictures there uh, I've put on the slide for you. Uh, if yeah, there's the first one. There's a reconstruction. So what you would do, there's kind of a cutaway. You would go through the door, and you can kind of see this pit, and then there's this kind of bench area around it. And what you would do is you would lay the body out on one of these benches, wrapped in linen clothes, and you would let the body decompose. You would let the body decompose for about a year till all the soft tissues are gone, and that all that's left is bones. And about a year later, you would come back, the family would come back, and they would scoop up the bones, and they would put them in a box known as an ossuary, a bone box. And they found many of these in uh, this time frame. That's what Joseph is doing. He is doing this process. He's doing primary burial. The body of Jesus is going to be laid out. It's going to de He's expecting it to decompose over the course of a year. They'll come back. They'll scoop his bones and put them in a box. What does all of that communicate? Well, it communicates that uh, Joseph, amongst the rest of the disciples, don't expect Jesus to rise again. They don't expect that. The disciples, though Jesus has said it multiple times, none of the disciples are expecting Jesus to rise again from the dead. So what does he do? He takes all the preparations. Joseph knows when a body is dead. Uh, Jesus is really dead. There's plenty of eyewitnesses. Uh, it's, it's not as if uh, sometimes you hear this ridiculous claim that Jesus swooned on the cross, that he lost consciousness, and somehow he was uh, you know, just unconscious, and then he's wrapped up in these cloths and laid in the tomb, and he was kind of unconscious for all of that. It's just ridiculous. He's dead. It's a corpse being washed and wrapped in linen clothes, laid on a stone bench, and then the door is being closed. You can go to the next slide if you want. There's a good picture of one of these tombs. This isn't obviously the Jesus tomb, but it's one of these tombs that has a rolling door. The stone that they would roll against this thing is massive, right? So three to four, three to four, four and a half feet in diameter, really thick. So we're talking multiple hundreds of pounds. And this is going to be rolled in front of the door. Uh, this also discounts, uh, this is another way of thinking of discounting any idea that Jesus, Jesus was just unconscious, and then he got up and let himself out of the tomb. I don't know if you've ever tried, um, you'd have to open this thing from the inside. And what are you going to have to do with this stone if it's rolled in front of the door? You're going to have to like place your hands on the stone and try to like, like 
move it like this. Normally, these stones took multiple men to move. So even though Joseph is the one described doing all this action, he's probably got some helpers, and this tomb is sealed. The way Jesus was buried shows that he was really dead, shows that his disciples didn't think he was going to rise from the dead. Not only that, there are eyewitnesses, the same eyewitnesses that saw him die. Look at verses 60, look at verse 61. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there sitting opposite the tomb. So they're evidently close by. They might not even know Joseph. Uh, maybe they participated in some of the preparatory um, events with the, the corpse. But these are the same, at least only two are mentioned here. Three were mentioned in verse 56. But at least two of them, the women who saw Jesus die, are the women who saw Jesus buried. So there's, there's a continuity between Jesus being, a continuity of witness from Jesus being brought down from the cross, all these preparations happen and being laid in the tomb. It discounts the possibility of there being a corpse switch or perhaps uh, some sort of bundle of rags that looks like a corpse. It discounts all of that. These are eyewitnesses. They are disciples who saw Jesus die and saw him buried. All of this, as we've already said, shows Jesus really died. Jesus was laid in a tomb. It discounts many of the theories that would discount the resurrection, but there's one more piece. There's one more piece to all of this that proves even in death, Jesus is showing himself to be the Son of God. Go back to Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 is a chapter you should know well in your Bible. Really, you could back up to Isaiah 52, 13, and work all the way through chapter 53. And it describes the suffering servant of the Lord, who even in within Isaiah would, um, is arguably the Messiah, the King of Israel. But in this case, it's the suffering servant who's dying in behalf of the sins of the many. And what it turns out, even in Isaiah, the many are not just Jews, but they're also those from the nations in the surrounding context of Isaiah. In, as you look through Isaiah 53, you can see how all of the things it talks about were fulfilled in Jesus' life. And again, this is Isaiah speaking about 700 BC, so about 700-ish years before Jesus walks the earth. But I'll draw your attention this morning to Isaiah 53, and I'll start in verse 7 just to back up and give a little context. Uh, so in describing this servant and how this servant's going to die for the sins of the many, to rescue them from exile, Isaiah 53, 7 says this, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears and is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? So you see there the 
the trial where Jesus is silent, like a lamb led to the slaughter. He's accepting what's coming to him. He dies. He's cut off out of the land of the living, and he, but he's stricken for a purpose, for the transgression of the people. Now catch verse 9. And they made his grave with the wicked. Or another way to render that is his grave was to be appointed with the wicked. And that's how they've killed Jesus. They've thought of him as a wicked man. That's how the Jews have thought of him. He's, he's a wicked man. He's a deceiver, as they'll call him here in a second. He's a blasphemer. So they're appointing him a grave with the wicked. But with a rich man in his death, he was actually what ended up happening is he was laid with a rich man in his death which is exactly what's happening with Joseph and Arimathea. It's Joseph's tomb. Joseph owns the tomb. It's for him. Except in this case, it's a rich man's tomb. He's using it for Jesus. Although he had done no violence, there was no deceit in his mouth. Now, Jesus has died. Jesus can't dictate to Joseph what to do after he's dead. This only works if Jesus is, from God's perspective and from God's plan, showing once again, amongst all the other things that we've seen, that Jesus really is that one from Isaiah 53. Jesus really is the Son of God. Jesus really is the King of Israel. And Jesus really did die for the sins of his people. So we go back to our initial question thinking about, do you articulate in your gospel presentation just that reality of Jesus' burial? Part of presenting the gospel message is doing that. Jesus really did die. Didn't simply lose consciousness. There are eyewitnesses. And more than that, the way he was buried fulfills Scripture. And so what does that mean? It drives you to the same thing that Jesus has been calling for the whole time. That Matthew has been calling for to his Jewish audience who would have heard, you know, all these theories that are discrediting Jesus, discrediting the resurrection. Matthew's saying, no, everything about how Jesus died and was buried shows that he is the son of God and he deserves your allegiance, your faith, your repentance, you're following, you're being a disciple. So that's the first thing we see in this section this morning. But then we see this, Jesus' burial is sealed against false resurrection. So there's more, there's more to how this burial is happening that guarantees that Jesus is the son of God. Jesus' burial in verses 62 through 66, it's sealed against false resurrection. So let's pick it up in verse 62. The next day, so remember, Jesus dies on Friday. The next day, so this is Saturday, that is after the day of preparation. So uh, Matthew describes this day as a little bit funny. So Friday is uh, when Jesus dies. And then Matthew says, well, this day after, that is the day of preparation, the day after the day of preparation. That's a really roundabout way of describing something. If, uh, if it's Friday and it's the next day, it's Saturday. Well, what's Saturday? Saturday is the Sabbath. He could have just said the next day, that is the Sabbath, but he doesn't. He says it's the day after the day of preparation. 
Why is that? Well, look what happens. The chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate. And what these chief priests and Pharisees, so here we've got a selection, a part of the Sanhedrin, a selection of the religious leaders that have uh, cooked everything up so that Jesus has been crucified. And what they're about to do, they're about, they go to Pilate, they arrange all of these details, they're, they're going to go to the tomb with a guard of soldiers, and they're going to try to secure it. That sounds a lot like work on the Sabbath. Which is kind of contrasted with Joseph, who's a disciple of Jesus. He got all of his work done ahead of time, before the Sabbath closed. He was an observant Jew. But here we see another evidence of the hypocrisy of the, and the falseness of these shepherds of Israel. They're going to make sure, they're going to do their preparations the day after the day of preparation uh, on the Sabbath, effectively breaking it in how they make their preparations against Jesus. So what are they going to do? They come to Pilate. It's kind of funny that uh, Joseph had to go to Pilate, and now these religious leaders have to go to Pilate. Pilate has, uh, Jesus has been crucified under the Roman auspices, so he's in charge. They go to him and they said, Sir, we remember how that imposter, or literally deceiver, we remember how that deceiver said while he was still alive, after three days, I will be risen. It's not an active, it's a passive. Uh, the way they quote Jesus' words is, uh, correctly is that he will be risen, uh, which means in that passive voice, uh, the, the way they're quoting Jesus is his resurrection is going to be accomplished by God. Now, what's amazing in all of this is that these leaders they are taking heed to Jesus' prediction to the resurrection more than the disciples. The disciples haven't cited these words, although Jesus has multiple times predicted his resurrection from the dead. He's spoken it directly to them. In fact, he hasn't really publicly, uh, very, uh, publicly said that he's going to rise from the dead, although he did say, even ba back as far as Matthew 12, uh, that I'll give you a sign, I'll give you a sign of the Son of Man, just like Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Which implies what? Well, after those three days, he's going to rise. Maybe Judas gave him a little bit more information that, hey, he, Jesus made this prediction. Because he did make the explicit prediction to the disciples, after three days, he's going to be risen. He's going to be risen. But what's funny about all of this is that though they don't believe this. They don't believe that Jesus is going to rise from the dead, but they remember his words and they take precautions. They think Jesus is a deceiver. A deceiver in what sense? Well, all of his teaching, all of the gathering of people to himself, uh, all of his intimations that he's the Messiah, he's a deceiver. They don't believe him at all, um, but they remember his words. What are they calling on Pilate to do then? Verse 64, therefore, Order the tomb to be made secure until the third day. What are they afraid of? Lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he has been raised from the dead. And the last fraud will be worse than the first. So they understand. They're not stupid. All right. They, they think, all right, well, um, we've heard this from Jesus. We don't believe it. We don't believe he's going to rise again. But uh, is there a way that the disciples could try to make this look like a resurrection? Well, if they went to the tomb in the night, there'd be enough of them to roll away the stone, steal the body, and then they could just say, hey, look, he's been raised from the dead. 
And they're afraid of that because why? Because they understand that a resurrected Messiah would gather people, would encourage belief, would vindicate Jesus and all that he taught. They understand this. So what's the best solution? Let's put a guard against the tomb. Let's put a guard against the tomb. Let's secure it. And, you know, what's Pilate's motivation? It's not like these guys are in great terms with Pilate in general, but what's Pilate's motivation? Pilate doesn't want an uproar. Pilate doesn't want any sort of disturbance that's going to disturb the status quo of Rome's rule. So, you know, he, he goes ahead and yields to them. 65, Pilate said to them, you have a guard of soldiers. Go make it as secure as you can. Make it as secure as you know. Do what you think is necessary to block up this tomb, to secure against any claim that he's been raised from the dead. Verse 66, so they went and they made the tomb secure by sealing the stone with a guard. So they go to the tomb with a guard of soldiers, at least four, at least four men, um, maybe more. And then they seal the stone. Did you catch that? That's kind of an odd language. What are they doing? What are they doing sealing the stone? Uh, are they putting uh, epoxy around the, the, the edges? No, it's not what they're doing. Uh, actually, there's kind of a parallel in Daniel 6.15. When Daniel goes into the lion's den, they put a stone over Daniel's, um, where Daniel is. And the king comes and he takes a signet ring and he puts a seal on the stone. Uh, probably what's going on is they might be putting some sort of device or kind of uh, maybe even a bit of clay that would show tampering. So this is like a, a, a this is something it seems like that is showing first the authority by which you're not supposed to touch this thing. Don't touch this thing um, on the word of the religious leaders, but also under the word of Rome. But it's probably also some device that would show if there is any sort of tampering, it would show. Why are they doing this? They are trying to take every precaution against any claims to a false resurrection. And we owe them a great deal of thanks because they have precluded all sorts of fault. The only way that Jesus could get out at this point, disciples aren't going to come and they're not going to overpower a bunch of soldiers uh, they're going to try to undermine this claim later. We'll look at that next week when Jesus actually does rise from the dead. They're going to try to backpedal and make it good, but it's, it's, it ends up being ridiculous because they've made their precautions well. They have guaranteed that the only explanation for Jesus, Jesus' body was seen. We saw that in the last episode, seen being placed in that tomb. It's been seen placed dead. Uh, the, tomb, the, the stone has been rolled. There's no way that someone could, as an individual from the inside, roll away that stone. Uh, and uh, now we've got a guard around it. This is like the um, ultimate Houdini act, right? They've guarded against every false sort of claim. This, the only way that Jesus can get out of that tomb at this point is either as a corpse, but if he's not a corpse and the tomb is empty, where did it go? They have sealed it against a false claims of resurrection, and they are unwittingly doing God's bidding in so doing. Again, even if Jesus had simply lost consciousness, which he didn't, that's absurd, he would have had to get out of his burial clothes 
and then try to roll away this massively heavy stone inside. Then, after rolling away this stone from the inside, which is impossible, because he has no strength, he's been flogged, he's been, uh, he's, he has all these wounds from his crucifixion, he has no strength. After he got out, then he would have had to get by the soldiers. Tampering would have been shown by the seal they put on the tomb. The disciples can't approach, and nor do they want to. No one of the disciples is expecting Jesus to rise from the dead. So all of this should lead to the way Jesus was buried, even by his enemies, all of this should lead to your trust into Jesus as truly being the Son of God. We'll see his resurrection next week, but even the burial proves it. Jesus really did give his body and his blood, his death. For what purpose? Remember, Jesus interpreted the significance of his own death at the Last Supper, which we were going to celebrate this morning. What did he say? Here's my body. Eat. Eat with faith that I'm giving my body, my life for you. Here's my blood for the forgiveness of sins. Drink. An act of faith, a visceral act of portrayal of faith in what he was about to do. We've seen the vindication of his death, even in all those supernatural events, after, immediately after he dies, but even in how he is buried, he is still being proved as the son of God, the true king, the God-man who really did give his human body and blood for his people. You will call his name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. What's the response? Faith. But not just faith in the sense that I mentally assent to this. If you just say, yeah, I believe that Jesus died and I believe that he even raised from the dead, you could believe that mentally and not know Jesus. Because what Jesus has portrayed as faith through, this, through Matthew is really captured by that term allegiance. You have a faith, you have a loyalty to Jesus. Why? Because of who he is. Because he is the true king. Because, you be, um, be, um, because of what he has done. Yes, we believe in what he did, but we don't divorce what he did from the person. And so what does faith look like? What does repentance look like? It, 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 I describe it this way often. It means you have a transaction with the king. You have a transaction with the living Christ. You see, you don't want to just kind of uh, come in here today and say, yeah, I believe all of these things mentally. I convince myself. Faith is not convincing yourself. Faith is not convincing yourself that something is true. Faith is, believe, faith is always oriented to the other. So who are you having dealings with? Who are you having loyalty to? Who are you having allegiance to? The only way that makes any sense is if you believe in the living Christ. Jesus said in his trial when the, the chief priest asked him, are you, are you the Christ? He said, you said it. And from now on, you're going to see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of God. That's where Jesus is right this minute. He is sitting at this very moment at the right hand of God. 
Paul in 1 Timothy 2 talks about him as the one mediator between God and man. Meaning, if you have faith in Jesus, that means you need to have dealings with Jesus. You need to have interactions with the one mediator. I'm not the mediator between God and man. You can't just go to the Father apart from Jesus. You have to have dealings with the risen Christ. And the only way you're going to have dealings with the risen Christ is if you believe he died on behalf of your sins, that he was really buried, and as we will see next week, that he raised. Because only in that way do you have a path, do you have a way of interacting with God. If you were to try to approach God on your own, in your sins, you'd be obliterated. You cannot. God won't listen to sinners' prayers. God won't listen to pleas for forgiveness apart from the one mediator between God and man. This is why all other, false, uh, all other religions, except for Christianity, are false. Roman Catholicism is a false religion. Why? Because you have to go through the priest to receive absolution. I do not have to go through another human. I go through one human, the God-man, Jesus Christ, through mediation. I don't, uh, like, say, Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormons, uh, who kind of sound Christian-esque. It's like faux Christianity. That's what it is. Uh, I don't uh, present my works to God and say, look at all these great works. No, all of their works, apart from Apart from seeing them through the lens of Christ or filthy rags, there's nothing that I could bring to God. It had to be this way. And you have to have dealings with the risen Christ. Not only to say, I believe in what you did. I believe that you did what you did. But also, I believe that your character and that you will, you will account those things to me. And I'm committed to following you. How, how horrible would it be to say, yeah, I believe in what you did for me, and I believe that you saved me from my sin, and then I'm just going to live however I want. How demeaning to Christ's sacrifice. How demeaning to his death and resurrection. No, that's why we use the term allegiance. It's a life of faith, a faithful faith, of commitment, of loyalty to Jesus because of who he is and because of who he proved himself to be through his death burial, and resurrection. So trust in Jesus as the Son of God, since even his burial proves it. And the amazing thing is this morning we get to celebrate that. We get to visibly portray our faith as we come to the Lord's table. So I'm going to pray for what we've heard in the sermon I might give you just a few quiet seconds to respond in your hearts to the Lord, and then I'm going to bring us back, and we will transition to partaking in the Lord's Supper together. Father, we thank you that how it's all your plan. It's all been orchestrated perfectly. You vindicated the death of your son. You planned his burial in such a way that it, 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 it... the only explanation is the one that has been given is that he has been raised, the one the angel will give next week. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for providing the only way that our sins could be forgiven and that we could approach the holy God. Thank you for providing for our future hope of 
resurrection and knowing you and reigning with you in the new heavens and the new earth forever and total peace and joy because you are there. Because the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are there. Lord, we thank you. Lord, please forgive us. Uh, I confess doubts and skepticism, even in my own heart, they rise at times. And yet, thank you for the record, the eyewitness testimony that we have that, that is not against the evidence, but is from the evidence that you are truly the Son of God. Oh Lord, please give us faith. Faith is still a gift that you give. The ability to through the being born again by your spirit to have the ability to look to Christ and to trust him and to walk in allegiance to him because of who he is. Oh Lord, I pray if there are any in this room that do not know you, who are unwilling to swear allegiance to you, to walk and follow you as your disciple, I pray that you would have mercy on them and draw them to yourself. Lord, we pray even as we prepare to partake in the sign that you left for us, Lord Jesus, the new covenant sign, the new covenant that you initiated at the cross. Lord, help us to partake in a way that honors and pleases you. Help us now, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. So as we partake in the Lord's Supper, uh, let's get the, the, the logistics side of it out of the way first. Uh, the deacons will dismiss, for those of you who haven't done this with us before, the deacons will dismiss by rows from the back. The music team is going to be playing some music um, that we're going to sing to together. So we've been doing this the last few times. Uh, as, as we process forwards to partake in the table, we're going to be singing we're going to be singing together about what Christ has done, about what this table represents. And so the deacons will dismiss by rows. Uh, if, you, if you're not able, you know, you're physically not able to get up and come forward, just ask your neighbor or ask the deacon who's dismissing you to, to bring you uh, a cup back. Uh, you'll come forward and there's a double stack. There's the cup with the juice in it and then the wafer. Um, but come forward, grab the cup, uh, Go back to your seats. Please wait. Don't partake by yourself. This is not an individual meal. It, uh, if you partake individually, it actually undermines the symbolism of what is happening. Wait until we all partake together. What are we doing? We've already said a lot about it this morning, but I would just remind you of the connection with this passage that we looked at with Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 very clearly shows Jesus taking on himself the transgressions of his people, being slaughtered, being buried, and even in Isaiah 53, hints of the resurrection. So what we are doing as we, we eat and we drink this table, we are remembering Jesus' sacrifice we are, we are ver, ver, visibly portraying our faith in him, our allegiance to him. And it also, as we are bound together, as we are portraying, I am bound to Christ, I am, I am saved because of what he has done, I'm justified because of what he has done. We do this as a family because Jesus didn't just purchase me, he purchased a family, a family of disciples which is shown in the local church. And so this is why we do it visibly. We come forward and we partake together. 
Who's it for? Not everyone who's here this morning should partake in this table. In fact, if you partake of the new covenant sign, which is what this is wrongfully, you, you drink judgment on yourself. So social pressure versus drinking judgment from God on yourself. So who's it for? Those who have sworn allegiance by repentance and faith to King Jesus, and you've gone public with that allegiance. The idea is that Jesus, and we'll talk about this in a couple weeks, is Jesus uh, expects his disciples to go public with their faith before the church. So if you've not done that, if you're kind of a secret disciple and no one knows I would recommend that you not come forward this morning. But as you come forward, you're relying on Jesus' atonement alone for cleansing from sin. It's for those who are walking obedience to Jesus' commands as king, repenting of known sin and not perfectly. So if there's like a pet sin in your life and you're unwilling to give it up, you should not come forward because you're just mocking Jesus' death, which is what this symbolizes. But nor are we saying that I had a perfect week this week. I had a great week. I feel worthy. I feel worthy to come forward at the table. It's not a matter of worthiness. None of us are worthy. But it's a matter of are we trusting in Jesus' sacrifice? And are we walking in a way that reflects that? Walking in repentance of known sin. As we've already said, it's not just for you as an individual, but it's for our church family gathered together. We are proclaiming the gospel to one another and to the world. It shows our unity based on our common share in Christ. So if you've got a grudge with someone else, if you've got a bitterness and you're not dealing with that with someone else in this congregation, like you're harboring bitterness in your heart, you should not partake, but you should go deal with that, with that brother or sister in Christ first. It's primarily for the members who make up this local church, those who have committed to this church, those who have gone forward in baptism, but if you are an attender and not a member with us today, the members would like to invite you as long as you have our trusting in Jesus' sacrifice alone and our walking obedience to him. This is a very sober and holy thing. So parents, help your children to discern whether they're ready for this responsibility. And if there's any confusion, if you don't understand, the proper thing to do is to stay seated. And I'd love to have a conversation with you to think through what we do as we partake in the table together. Look back to the cross, look around you to the people that Christ has purchased, and look forward to the kingdom where Christ will partake in this supper with us in the future. So let's go ahead and partake together. <clears throat>